listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Today's scripture is found in Psalms 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Um, My name is Mike. I'm one of the members here at Sojourn, and I'm truly honored to be able to uh, speak on God's word this morning. And I was just thinking, you know, during the worship and uh, uh, when Tom was praying, how blessed are we here? I mean, we have these uh, amazing ministers that lead us in worship and lead us to the throne of God. And I just truly believe that uh, they have helped usher in the presence of God this morning. So I'm, I'm uh, man, I'm blessed to be here. Now, I do have a very quick disclaimer right here at the top because you'll notice that the bulletin says we're speaking on one 35, Psalm 135 this morning, and that's actually not part of the Psalms of Ascent. And so in my defense, um, Justin has graciously allowed me to speak on Psalm 135, not because I'm just stubborn and want to be different. Um, my wife would say probably it is because I'm stubborn. It's because actually there, there's, uh, uh, there are actually many Hebrew scholars who feel that Psalm 35 and Psalm 30 six should be part of the songs of ascent and they flow so nicely with psalm 134 which was preached on beautifully last week and so 
we're going to go with that as the reason I'm preaching on Psalm 135. It has nothing to do with the fact that I was supposed to preach on 135 last summer and then canceled at the last minute. That, that is besides the point. All right. A, um, a few years ago, I was attending a graduate seminar in Louisville, Kentucky, and there was about 12 of us sitting around a table, and the, the younger guys involved in college and youth ministry, they were lamenting that this generation just doesn't seem to care about spiritual things. It's not that they don't believe in God or even see the value or truth of Christianity. It's simply something that they feel is not worth their time. The current research tells us that every year, one million young Christians walk away from their faith. And the number one reason that they cite is apathy. There seems to be this growing sense of indifference. That Christianity is just one of many options available to find peace and happiness and satisfaction in this life. In past generations, we, we, combated, we combat, combated against atheism and skepticism and naturalism. But now it's just, we don't care. It's not that this generation's angry with God or that they hate Christianity. They just don't see it as important. A Wall Street Journal poll conducted just last month asked people what their top values were in life. 89% of those surveyed said hard work. 79% said financial security. 64% self-fulfillment. For those surveyed between the ages of 18 and 38, religion came in at 30%, way down the list. Now let me give you one recent example of how this is being manifested. A few weeks ago, Marty Sampson, former Hillsong United worship leader, posted on his Instagram account, and if you don't know who Marty Sampson is, you're probably familiar with his songs. He, he wrote, Better Than Life, Take It All, Came to My Rescue. That's one of my favorites. But this is what he wrote. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. And then he goes on to, to really put his finger on the pulse of what many in this generation believe, that there are lots of things out there that can change your life, not just belief in God or one particular version of belief in God. And he closed his post saying, all I know is what's true to me right now. And Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. I think it's far too easy for us to believe that the obstacles we face today are somehow different from those of past generations. So I have a radical proposal for you this morning. I am convinced that the problem afflicting this generation is the same problem that has afflicted every generation since the time of creation. Good, old-fashioned idolatry. Yes, that idolatry. The idolatry we hear about in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, 
and the prophets, the idolatry that the people of Israel were continually struggling with in worshiping false gods. Now, we might be tempted today in our modern thinking to think that, you know, since most people here in America don't seem to worship or bow down to carved statues of other gods, we think, well, idolatry, that's not the problem. That's not an issue today. But the reality is that idolatry is alive and well in this generation. St. Augustine tells us in the opening prayer of his autobiographical confessions, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. We were created made to worship God. And as Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1, rejecting God or being indifferent to God simply means that we have turned our worship over to other things. If society doesn't seem to care about religion or about worshiping God, it's not because somehow humans have evolved or that we're more enlightened and feel the need no longer to worship a society that is apathetic toward the worship of God is giving their worship to something else. What I want to do this morning is turn our eyes to Psalm 135 because I actually believe that here, in God's word, we can find help as we confront the apathy and indifference of our culture. Here in the words that were just read, we see the psalmist charging the Levites, the priests ministering in the temple, with leading the people of God to reject the lifeless idols of the world and worship the one who has chosen them as his treasured possession. And today, that's our charge as well. That is a call for us. We have been called to invite this generation to abandon the lifeless idols of the world and join us in worshiping in serving the living God. Amen? And here's my main objective this morning. If we're going to effectively do that, to call people to abandon their idols, guess what? We must first examine our own hearts and our own lives and remove the idols that we have placed there. So are you ready? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. God, as we come before you, Lord, I thank you that you have prepared this place for worship, prepared this place for your name to be magnified, that your very presence is here with us. And Lord, I pray that I might decrease so that you will increase. May I speak your truth. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first thing I want to talk about this morning is the charge we have as Christians. The charge we have as Christians. If we look in our psalm here at verse 1 and 2, it says, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. These verses are rather interesting in that if you scroll back to, to 134, the previous psalm, which only has three 
verses, Psalm 135 begins by reiterating those words. It continues with that same message. And that's why I feel like Psalm 35 is an exclamation mark at the end of the Songs of Ascent. Because it calls each of us gathered here this morning to serve the living God. And I believe all, all together, I think these words just paint this vivid picture. It says, the servants of the Lord who minister in the house of the Lord. That likely refers to the priests, the Levites, who are charged with the worship of God in the temple. And when it refers to the courts of the house of God, this is where the Israelites would assemble when they came to worship at the temple. And so we have this, this amazing picture of the priest standing before this tremendous throng of people, leading them into worship, ushering them into the very presence of God. And yet, as you can imagine, singing these words as they ascended the temple mount. We see this charge echoed in the closing verses of the psalm, verses 19 through 21, O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. Psalm 116, verse 19 says, In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And so together with Psalm 134 and verse 1 and 2, this is our charge this morning. This is our charge. It's no longer just for the Levites. Because the New Testament tells us in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our call as Christians, is to usher others into the house of God to worship the Almighty. And I love how the psalmist kind of puts this charge in its proper perspective. Verse 3 and 4. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel as His own possession. Church, He has chosen us. I love how Spurgeon, what, what Spurgeon says about this in his commentary on this psalm. He says, Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of the God, you are highly favored. You are the domestics of the palace, nearest to the father of the heavenly family, privileged to be in his house. Therefore, you must, beyond all others, abound in thanksgiving. We have been chosen before the foundations of the world. He knew you. He loved you. You were chosen in Christ to be His. And even though our sins were many, even though all of us had turned our back on Him and worshipped other things, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us. And because of this, verse 2, look what he says. We stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. It's our God. 
See, because of Christ's work on the cross, we hold the position of being able to declare our God. There's this unique communion between God and his people. We're able to call God our own. We are his and he is ours. And you can hear the sense of joy and assurance that the psalmist is conveying here. And then finally, as the psalmist is putting this in perspective, verse 4, the Hebrew here is peculiar or treasured possession. We are his and no one else's. We are the treasure, church. We are the treasure that God keeps for himself. God's most precious and costly jewels. How can we not take this charge seriously? This is our charge as Christians, our commission this morning. It is a call to action for the people of God. It's not enough for us to praise God by ourselves. We need to call in others to invite them into the presence of God. I remember back in the 80s as a young Christian, my first Bible study leader challenging me to share my faith with other people. And he's saying, Mike, you got, you know, we, we need to share the gospel. And you know, my initial response was, well, you know, I don't feel called to do that kind of thing. That's not really my thing. Now you, I understand, you're, you're on staff with Crusade, got that. Pastors, missionaries, they have the call to do evangelism. Me? You know, just not my thing. I like books and studying. <laughs> And then he pointed me to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go therefore into all the world, make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, you see, I was a literature major, so, you know, I'm all about context. I said, well, John, you know, look at the context there. That's Jesus after the resurrection. He's appearing to the disciples. He's telling them to go into the world and preach the gospel. And he said, but, but look how it continues. After he commands them to do that, he says, and teach them to carry out everything I've commanded you. You see, this great, that great commission, this charge here this morning in Psalm 135, it's for us. We cannot escape it. And I don't know if that excites you or, or if it sounds like the most intimidating thing ever. More than likely, it's a little of both. But here at Sojourn, we desire, to, we desire to live out this commission to share the gospel and see more worshipers called into the house of God to praise his name. And whether we like it or not, whether it gets us excited or whether it fills us with dread, all of us have this charge. We've been called to invite this generation to join us in worshiping and serving the living God. But to do that, we must also call them to abandon their, their lifeless idols. And therein lies our greatest challenge. The second point this morning is the challenge we face as a generation, the challenge we face as a generation. If you take a look at verse 15, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths 
but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Here's, what our, here's where our psalmist turns the discussion to idolatry. And actually, he begins in verse 5. He says, For I know that the Lord is great and that our God is above all gods. And then he goes through the rest of the psalm, drawing a stark contrast between the dead idols of the day and the living God of Israel. And I find it very interesting that the Psalms don't actually talk a great deal about idolatry. We see it continually in the prophets for sure. But when you think about it, it's quite natural that in a book dedicated to the worship of God, the Psalms, and in a psalm challenging us to call others into worship, that we find our greatest challenge pinpointed and discussed, idolatry. Now, I mentioned earlier that it's easy to brush off idolatry as an ancient problem. <clears throat> or perhaps a problem that, faced, uh, that they face in other cultures around the world where they actually do bow down to idols. And I had this conversation with a friend recently who was arguing that idolatry only refers to the actual worship of images and statues. They were concerned that the, the word idol was somehow being overapplied and therefore misrepresented. And I, I certainly don't want to do that this morning. But I do think it's important for us to look at what the scripture says about idolatry. Exodus 20 verse 3 says, you shall have no gods before me. That's at the top of the list of the commandments. Ezekiel 14, 2 through 3 says that men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. I love how the NIV actually words this. It says they have set up idols in their hearts. And it is these idols that cause them to stumble into sin. Colossians 3, 5 tells us, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, the real problem with idolatry as depicted in the Bible is not just about statues and carved images, but it's about what we hold in our hearts John Calvin reminds us that the human heart is an idol factory. In other words, we're constantly generating things that we elevate as more important than God and that are taking our eyes off of Him and leading us into sin. Martin Luther declared, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. Let's turn back to that Wall Street Journal survey I referenced earlier. Why are people so apathetic and disinterested in the things of God? Well, it, it, it's right there in the survey, right? What do you value? 89% said working hard at my job. 79% said financial security. 64% said self-fulfillment. If I have a good job and I work hard and I make money, that's all that matters. 
I'll be happy, I'll be satisfied. For many, their job, their title is their God. For others, it's money, recognition. Nothing else matters. What was it that Marty Sampson said? He was losing his faith and it didn't bother him. He was happy and at peace with the world. In other words, he had self-fulfillment. And that was all that mattered. Make no mistake. This generation, which is indifferent to the things of God, has simply exchanged God for something they are not indifferent about. They're still worshipers. They're still worshipers. They're just worshiping something else. They have chosen in place of God. As Romans 1 tells us, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creation. When people set up idols in their hearts, what is the result? Verse 16 through 18 paints a vivid picture, right? It says, the idols they worship are dead, lifeless, deaf, blind, and mute. And then it goes on to say, and those who worship them become just like them. What a picture of this indifferent, apathetic, who cares generation. See, we have this mental image of idolatrous people dancing frantically around a, a statue, hooting and hollering, kind of like the scene in the Ten Commandments where Moses comes back to find Aaron has created a golden calf. But that's not... That's not the image that we have here in this text. The people are as dead and lifeless as the idols they worship. And isn't that the perfect, the perfect description of this indifferent generation? So how do we reach them? What do we do to overcome that challenge? Well, uh, I, th I think it's right here in the psalm, right? It's the answer. We continue calling them into worship. We continue talking about how God is alive, talking about how he delivers his people, how he has compassion on his servants, that he is eternal and that he's unchanging and there's not a thing that he can't do. There's not an obstacle that he can't overcome. He is greater than any God that you may have in your life. Look at verse 13. He says, Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. I love that word renown. This word, it means more than, than remembrance. It, it's fame. It means fame. The condition of being talked about or being known personally by many people. The opposite of renown would be obscurity. Right? Being relatively unknown or even reducing the value of something, covering it up, concealing it. We are called to make him famous. Can we honestly say that we're doing that in our lives? What do you talk about mostly at work? What did the majority of your social media posts reveal? Now, it's true. I like to talk about Blake Shelton at work and how his latest single is doing on the country charts, number 24, in case you're interested. 
And I've even been known on occasion to take a bathroom selfie or two. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. Well, maybe the bathroom selfie. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those things. But the question is, how do they stack up in proportion, in comparison to when you talk about God and His greatness and His goodness? Are you making Him famous by your words and actions? But you say, hey, we're doing that. It's still not working. This generation is still indifferent. They still don't seem to care. There has to be something more we can do. Mike, well, there is. We've identified our charge as Christians. We've pinpointed the challenge we face as a generation. And now we need to talk about the change that we must make as individuals. The change we must make as individuals. Here I want to focus on verse 5, where it simply says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. You know, you read over it like that, you might not pick up on it, right? But this is what it says. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. The word I is made emphatic in the original language. So whatever may be the case for other people, what our psalmist is saying here this morning, I have personally experienced it. I know that he is great. I know that he is good. I know firsthand of his infinite supremacy above all other gods. What it speaks about here is the authenticity of the person beckoning others to join and worshiping God. I know. Now, some of you may have picked up on the title of the sermon that's listed in the bulletin, Twilight of the Idols. I'm a bit of a philosophy nut. And Twilight of the Idols is the name of a book written by Friedrich Nietzsche in 1888. Now, Nietzsche is probably, perhaps, the most notorious atheist and critic of Christian faith. He is, to this day, probably one of the most influential philosophers in our culture. His ideas permeate uh, both academia and society in general, especially when it comes to how our world thinks about right and wrong. Nietzsche is famous for declaring, God is dead. Twilight of the Idols is actually considered by most as Nietzsche's personal introduction to his body of work. He, was, uh, he wrote it actually in a few days. It's a very short work. He was on vacation. He was aware of the fact that he was becoming very popular. And so he wanted this kind of write this thing that served as a summary of everything he believed. And in it he speaks of contempt for those aspects of society that he deemed decadent and unsophisticated, and not surprisingly, of which he counted Christian faith in the church. So why on earth would I borrow the title of this book for this message this morning? Well, I, I think it's the, the amazing juxtaposition of idolatry and how Nietzsche characterized Christians in general. 
You see, he saw them as hypocritical. He saw them as hypocritical. He saw them as not living according to the things that they preached. Not living according to the words of Jesus. And he saw them as part of an organization, the church, that simply was manipulating people for the sole purpose of having power over them. Now, that's not a very flattering picture of Christianity. But I was thinking about this. Do you think Nietzsche believed that about Christians because he somehow, you know, examined their ideas and and concluded that that was the natural consequence of what they believed? Or, what I think is more likely, his personal experience with Christians was that they were hypocritical and didn't live out their beliefs. So here's my point. If we are to effectively call others to abandon the lifeless idols of the world and join us in worshiping and serving the living God, we must first examine our hearts and remove the idols in our own lives. We can talk about our faith all we want. We can proclaim the greatness of God. We can post scripture on our Twitter feed all day. But if our actions don't convey that we are authentic in that message, it will not resonate. If Psalm 135's theme is that Yahweh is a living God as contrasted with dead idols, then we have to ask ourselves, does God come across as alive when people look at my life? Am I just as lifeless and indifferent as the people around me? Is Marty Sampson the only one that feels that way? Or are we all just really good at hiding it? To a world that says, I don't care. Are they truly saying that to the God of the universe? Or are they saying that to the God of Christians? I submit to you that the reason so many people today are indifferent to God is because they see us as indifferent. They see us, those who worship the living God, as not much different than they are. It's like we can recite this whole psalm about the greatness of God and we can sing it in church, but we leave out the most important part. I know, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded. Do you have idols in your own life that are impeding you from fulfilling the charge that we are called to carry out? That's my question. So let's conduct a simple test here. I take it from Philippians 1.21, where Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ. He's summing up, he's summing up what, what life is to him. For to me, to live is Christ. See, the thing that is life to you, that energizes you the most, that is your God. Let's go back to Exodus 20. Verse 3, you shall have no gods before me. Now, we have a tendency to think of the word before me as meaning ahead of. 
So we like to make these little lists and say, well, as long as God is on top, family second, ministry third, job fourth, that's, that's the right order, right? As long as I got it like that, I'm okay, right? As long as God's on top, I'm good. But the text is actually saying, you shall have no other gods in my presence before me. See, God is not simply telling us, don't have anything in your life that's more important than me. He is saying, don't have anything, any gods besides me. Exodus doesn't ask us to make God our top God. He is to be our only God. Now, each of us needs to come before God and ask Him to search our heart and to see if there is anything that we have allowed to come between us and Him. Tim Keller has written a very helpful book called Counterfeit Gods. My time is coming to an end, so I will commend you to that book. He discusses modern-day idols and how we can identify them in our own lives. He provides us with the following help. He says... What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It is incumbent upon us as God's people to call everyone into worship of the true God, to expose the idols of our day and to draw a stark contrast between those idols and the living, personal, loving God of the universe made known through Jesus Christ. We are to lift up the name of Jesus we love because he first loved. We are able to stand and worship him because he has transformed our hearts and made us into true worshipers. And if we're going to invite others to that same freedom in Christ, we need to make sure there are no idols in our own lives. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. If you have ever heard of William Carey, or never heard of William Carey, he is uh, often credited as the father of the modern missions movement. He lived in England during a time when there was great resistance to missionary work. He felt the call to preach the gospel to the lost, and he went before his church, and he pleaded with them to send him to India to reach the heathen. They actually refused him many times before finally agreeing to send him to preach the gospel in 1793. For the first seven years of Carey's ministry, he preached the gospel, he translated scripture, and never saw a single convert to Christ. His son, in addition to several members of his team, died suddenly. His wife suffered a nervous breakdown that she never recovered from. She would eventually die. He was fighting against a culture 
that was not receptive to the gospel, that had both idols in their hearts and idols that they literally bowed down to. And yet through it all, he endured, never losing faith, never losing hope, and ultimately seeing thousands and thousands of people come to Christ. He set up hundreds of schools for the education of the young. He founded a university. So how was he able to stand so firmly against those challenges? And that was an idolatrous generation. I want you to listen carefully to what Carey wrote in his personal journal about uh, his heart condition prior to his trip to India. Listen to what he said. I mourn my barrenness and the foolish wanderings of my mind. Surely I shall never be of any use among the heathen. I feel so very little of godliness in my own soul. It seems as if all the sweetness that I have formerly felt was gone, and I am not distressed. A guilty calm has spread over my soul. I feel too much sameness to be spiritual. Does that sound familiar? See the indifference in our culture? It's not unique. Carrie struggled with indifference and spiritual apathy himself. The difference is, well, how, did he, how did he deal with it? Prayer, yes. Reading the scripture, yes. Getting up and going to India even though he didn't feel like it, yes. But there's this very poignant moment in Carrie's life. One of my favorite stories in church history. And he was traveling on the ship to India. He was heading off to India for ministry from England. And he's standing at the bow of the ship overlooking the ocean. And he's praying about what awaits him in this, awaits him in this foreign land. And he's praying about his own barrenness. See, due to an illness... Carrie had actually lost all his hair in his 20s. And so he wore this wig to make, him look, make himself look better. And we have actual historical records of people saying it was the ugliest wig they ever saw. But, um, so while he's standing there in the bow of the ship praying, he tells us in his journal, he reached up, ripped that wig off his head, and threw it into the ocean. You see, Carrie had decided in that moment that he would no longer pretend to be something he wasn't. He would no longer seek the approval of men. He would no longer let anything, even as small as a wig, come between him and his God. I hope the message is obvious. If we are to effectively call others to abandon the lifeless idols of the world and join us in worshiping and serving the living God, then we must first examine our hearts and remove the idols from our own lives, no matter how small they may seem to us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,
We thank you for the word that speaks to us, for your Holy Spirit that is here this morning bringing conviction upon us, speaking to our own hearts, to our own lives. God, as I always say, my sermons are first and foremost for me. Thank you for speaking to me. Remove those things in my life that I become more excited about. And may all my joy and all my satisfaction and all my praise and worship be only for you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.